This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Uh, good morning. Um, welcome to the latest podcast from the Holden Wilcox Equity Capital Markets team. I'm John Hutchinson, and with me today are my colleagues Deborah Chu, who's a partner in our corporate team, and Anthony Bradica, a partner in our tax team. And our topic today uh, is all to do with executive remuneration and particularly um, equity plans, um, because building equity is building wealth. Um, Deborah, Anthony, my impression has always been that different types of share plan are firstly tax driven, and then Deborah and co fit the design of the plan into the regulatory framework. So Anthony, maybe we start start with you. Um, is there anything, sort of any new factors or any sort of new drivers in the tax design of these schemes that you're seeing? Yeah, hi, John. Um, so we come across a lot of plans across the marketplace and in all sectors. And, and certainly I'm not seeing any major shifts in the types of employee incentive arrangements being implemented. Uh, there's certainly no new tax or you know, plan tax changes that are driving new types or, or even a preference for certain types of LTIs. Now we're still seeing the, the same and usual types of plans, um, option plans, performance rights plans and share plans. And for those more senior executives, um, you know, the loan and subscription arrangements are still quite common. And look, certainly in the world of early stage companies, the environment is literally on fire with ESOPs, uh, employee share option plans that take advantage of the very generous tax concessions available to employees of these companies. So ESOPs are more in favour now than they were maybe five, 10 years ago? Absolutely, with the tax changes, um, for particularly for early stage companies. And there were some changes that were put through about seven or eight years ago that made options far more attractive than they used to be. And are they taking the place of performance rights to a degree? Because we used to hear an awful lot about performance rights, and I guess we still do, but are ESOPs shading performance rights? Oh, look, I'd probably say it's one for one um, in my experience and the kind of marketplace that I, I, that I work in. Um, I mean, I see performance rights as not dissimilar to options. There's, uh, there's usually a grant price and a strike price and an exercise price. Um, they seem to map against one another very similarly from an economic sense. Yeah. Uh, so in my mind, it's really just a, a different kind of terminology okay. for the particular plan. But certainly so from um, an equity capital markets perspective and in the public market space, um, I think you're probably more likely to see performance rights and performance shares. Yeah. Okay, um, great, thanks. Um, so Deborah, so Anthony and team have, um, with the client, come up with the appropriate plan um, to suit their circumstances. Um, so in the, both the listed and unlisted uh, scenario, I guess we should, we should look at. So again, my sort of recollection of it all is we're then scrambling around trying to find a way, because we're, we're talking about offering shares to the public um, or equity interests. Or, or equity interests. Um, so what we need to find an appropriate carve-out or exclusion from prohibition on offering securities, which I think used to lie in class orders. But I think that's that's changing. Yes, and it's changed pretty substantially. Last year, the asset class orders basically were put into the Corporations Act and the changes became effective in October. But there are subtle and also very significant differences between the asset class orders and the Corporations Act provisions. So when working with the new provisions, you really have to look 
pretty closely at how they apply and just make sure that you're still complying. The There's some key differences in the way the rules work for both listed and unlisted companies. For both listed and unlisted, the types of persons who can participate or who, who can be offered interests have been broadened quite a lot. I mean, an employee had always been covered, but now it can be a full-time employee, a part-time employee, a casual employee. You can cover consultants and other contractors without the contractor having to be employee-like. And there's a wide range of related parties, spouses, children, controlled body corporate, uh, a body corporate that's the trustee of a super fund. All of those can be offered interests without having to give a disclosure document like a prospectus. So that's really convenient. And also the um, monetary amount for unlisted companies that can be offered to participants has gone up substantially. It's now $30,000 in any 12-month period, plus 70% of any cash bonuses or dividends. So from that point of view, it's much easier to come within the protection of the Corporations Act provisions, though there are downsides as well. Um, particularly for an unlisted company. There are circumstances where the unlisted company may need to give evaluation or financial information or otherwise have an offer document. And also, Anthony, relating to your area, um, if the participant is being offered a loan under a loan plan, the loan needs to be interest-free and the person getting the loan um, can't already be a shareholder. So that'll have issues relating yeah. to FBT and- so, so the corporation's law rules aren't exactly compatible always with the tax. With the tax, with the tax no, which is interesting because you would think interest-free. Um, while that's a nice thing to have, certainly in certain cases under the tax rules, my understanding is you need to charge interest. So yeah. companies will need to look at that. Yeah. So generally the rules, the tax rules, there's been no dramatic change there recently, but the corporation's law, it sounds as though the regime's been sort of liberalized, made more generous. So I guess that means we're seeing more types of equity plan, more, um, more participation in equity plans than we did previously. It's interesting. I think it's still a bit of a pain <laughs> for unlisted companies yeah. to comply with the rules under the new Corporations Act provisions. So we're still seeing option plans in particular for unlisted companies yeah. where they're relying on the ordinary exemptions, right. small scale, senior yeah. manager exemptions, um, and other exemptions where you don't have to rely on the Corporations yeah. Act exemption. So it's more convenient for listed companies. Yeah. They had often complied with the class order. And so those plans will probably continue 
to be done under the Corporations Act. But interestingly, the plan rules for listed companies will need to be amended a bit right. in order to reflect certain significant yeah. changes, but pretty subtle changes. So, so that's something that listed companies will need to look at. Okay, so listed companies are starting to review their share plan documentation. Well, they should be. They should be. <laughs> <laughs> and they can call yeah. us to ask us to help them to do that. Um, and the other, I suppose, driver of these plans, not just building wealth, but also employee uh, executive retention. So are there any sort of key timeframes over which these plans operate to which tend to keep executives with the company? Is it one year, two years, three years? What sort of what, what sort of vesting period are we seeing? Or um, where does that retention element come from? Mm. Well, certainly in the experience that I've had um, across private and public, there, there certainly still is a very strong um, mandate to, to, to issue equity that has vesting uh, attached to it. Yeah. And whether that vesting is in the form of time-based vesting, uh, and often we're seeing staggered vesting over a three to four year period, potentially with say maybe even a 12 month cliff, where if you don't serve 12 months, you lose all the equity, but then from 12 months to the end of three years or four years, there's a progressive vesting of, of options yeah. or, or shares over that time time frame. Yeah. Often in one month increments, which is kind of weird because it's dribbling it out. Yeah, the, 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 the time frames do require often a bit of a, a calculation methodology having to be applied as well. Uh, and, and we certainly see from a vesting perspective, they can also be um, performance-based yeah. um, KPI type yeah. milestones also in, included with that uh, the vesting yeah. schedule as well. So companies are getting more and more sophisticated with how they uh, want to incentivise their employees and what sort of behaviours they want to um, encourage or incentivise to allow the employee or the exec to retain um, and, and take value out of their equity. So it's not just company total shareholder return, it's also individual performance Absolutely. indicators or both benchmarks. Yeah. Both company-based and yeah. performance individual-based. And that's most common at the executive level to yeah. have the performance triggers as well as the time vesting. I think for options that are granted to the rank and file, usually it's just time vesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else we want to talk about? Well, I should say in the context of making um, um, reviewing of existing plans and arrangements, I did say that there hadn't been any significant changes to the tax uh, landscape, and there really haven't been significant changes since 2015. But late last year, there was a uh, what I'd probably call a small c change um, to the tax regime, the tax laws applying to employer share schemes. Um, and some people may have heard about this one, but until um, uh, 1 July last year, so this change has only been in, in, in force uh, for less than 12 months now, um, the leaving of employment used to be a, a taxing point yep. for the exec or the employee. That um, taxing point has now been removed. So it basically means that, and this is particularly good for listed companies, it's going to eliminate a potential taxing point um, for employees, particularly of listed companies. Um, and it will mean that um, employees don't have that taxing point when they leave their employment, as long as they still retain their equity. It's probably less likely to be relevant to um, employees in a, and executives in a private company context, because in most cases in private company groups, uh, the owners of those private groups won't want employees and execs to, to, to hold equity yeah. after they've left. So typically when, if you're an employee of a private group, you're going to be asked to surrender or have that equity lapse. 
But in the context of listed companies, which do often allow employees to retain their equity, this change, which is going to apply from or has applied from 1 July last year, allows that employee to not suffer a taxing point. Actually, in the context of an unlisted company, there are what are called lever provisions often in this kind of context where if an executive in particular has been given shares or options, the executive may be required to give them back or to have the options lapse if they're what's called a bad lever. Yeah. Um, even if the options are vested or they've acquired the shares and they yeah. paid for them. So those lever events can be a gloss on the termination of, of the employment and what the circumstances or what the consequences of, of that employment ending might be. Very good. Thanks everyone for listening today. As always, please get in touch with us if you have any questions. You can find our details on our website, which is hallandwilcox.com.au or connect with us on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's episode, then rate, review or follow our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.